All right, welcome everyone to our first ever in-person podcast of Legal Faceoff uh, on WGN. I am Rich Lankov. I am one of the co-hosts of Legal Faceoff. My other co-host, Tina Martini, is unavailable today. She had to go out of town, so we miss her. Um, Legal Faceoff has been a podcast on WGN for over eight years. We're very proud to have been one of the first legal podcasts ever, and we think humbly the best one. Um, since COVID, we have migrated to uh, broadcasting online. We welcome a lot of our online uh, viewers today. We are also an audio podcast, and we are released on WGN every two weeks. Um, I have been a practicing attorney here in Chicago with a firm called Bryce Downey Lenkoff for almost 25 years. I'm a proud graduate of Northern Illinois University College of Law. Let's hear it for NIU. We've got several uh, representatives here, and um, if all goes as planned, this is the most I will be talking tonight, uh, because as you see, we've got uh, an absolutely stellar panel of uh, speakers today who are going to talk about our subject, which is black women and the law. Now, the first thing we'll get out of the way is I am neither black nor a woman. I know that will come as a shock to many of you. But I am a lawyer, and uh, I have been fortunate enough to host this podcast with several of these excellent individuals and many of you in the audience for many years. So I think we put together a pretty compelling program today, and especially relevant in light of, of course, what's going on right now in the U.S. Senate. We are on day two of the confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, who, of course, is the first ever black woman nominated for the Supreme Court. Let's all hear it for Judge Jackson. And uh, as uh, Judge Coleman just told me, we are unfortunately missing one of the highlights of the next couple of days, which is Judge Jackson going against Josh Howley of Missouri, Senator from Missouri. Uh, I'm sure she will do an excellent job as she has done earlier today. I was in fact on WGN earlier uh, on John Williams show talking about what was going on this morning. And from what I saw, she has done Obviously, an incredible job, incredibly qualified. And uh, we thought that today's program was especially relevant and timely in light of what we're seeing in Washington. So we're going to cover that in some respect, but also just generally the journey that black women in the law uh, have faced. And uh, these five individuals will help tell us about their journey and what the future looks like uh, in this area. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our, again, esteemed panel of all-stars, uh, starting with, on the left, Dean Cassandra Hill. Dean, welcome. Dean uh, Hill is the dean of Northern Illinois University College of Law. She has been the dean since July of 2020. She co-authored a book, Legal Analysis, 100 Exercises for Mastery. It's now in its second edition and has been adapted in more than 25 adopted at more than 25 law schools nationwide. She is chair of the American Bar Association Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar Conferences and Programming Committee and is the first elected African-American member on the Board of Directors for the Legal Writing Institute. Dean, welcome again. Thank you so much. We also are very uh, lucky to have with us Nakia Crossley. Nakia, welcome. Thank you very much. Nakia is president of the Black Women's Lawyers Association of Greater Chicago. She's also senior manager of public policy at Sunrun, 
where she leads regulatory policy strategy in the Midwest to energize more homes with solar power. She is uh, also a founding associate board member of Girl Scouts of Greater Chicago, Northwest Indiana, and a mentor and speaker for the Women of Renewable Industries and Sustainable Energy. Nikia, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Next is Senator Toy Hutchison, president and CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project. Senator, welcome. Uh, Toy served as an Illinois senator representing the 40th district from 2009 to 2019. During her time, the senator championed a variety of causes, including protecting women and children from violence, modernizing the state's tax structure, and legalizing cannabis. She is an original sponsor of the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, the most equity-centric law in the nation to legalize adult-use cannabis. She was appointed after leaving the Senate by Governor Pritzker as a senior advisor to the governor for cannabis control. And then recently, in January of 22, Senator Hutchison left the administration and became the first woman president and CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project, an organization that's focused solely on ending marijuana prohibition. Senator, welcome. Next is Judge Sharon J. Coleman of the U.S. District Court. Your Honor, very happy to see you today. Welcome. Uh, judge Coleman is, a, of course, a United States District Court judge for the Northern District of Illinois, Eastern Division. She was appointed in 2010 by President Barack Obama. Prior to her appointment, Judge Coleman was elected to serve as a justice on the Illinois Appellate Court, First District and served as a Cook County Circuit Court judge from 1996 to 2008. Judge Coleman, welcome again. Last but certainly not least, we are very fortunate to have Corey Carew. Corey is the Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer for Safe Hearth Shaw, LLP. Corey, welcome to the program. Corey is the Chief Inclusion Officer, as I mentioned, Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer, she focuses on inclusive leadership development, cultural fluency, skill building to mitigate bias and success strategies for professionals from underrepresented groups. She assists to innovate, integrate, and operationalize diversity, inclusion, and belonging into the business and practice of law. Corey, once again, welcome. All right. And I want to say a special thanks to all of you for joining us in person today again. Uh, this is the first time we are holding a podcast before a live audience, so we encourage your questions, we uh, encourage your participation, and uh, we're going to get started with our first question. So we talked, panel, about uh, the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson, of course, to the Supreme Court. That is one sign of the progress that black women lawyers have made. The fact that we've got um, a black female vice president in Kamala Harris is yet another sign. What's your overall sense of the progress made in this area and why it's taken so long to get to this point? Dean, do you want to start us off with that? Absolutely. So the nomination of Judge Jackson, as well as the election win for Vice President Kamala Harris, shows that we are finally being seen, right? That our contributions, our achievements, are being recognized and respected. But we all know that given history of 
race and gender discrimination, there are plenty, so many talented Black women that have not been able to achieve the career heights that they set out to do, even though their resumes are quite impressive, right? So I'm telling you, this is fact, not fiction, right? This is truly happening. And we don't even have to go back into history to think about it. We could just think about Judge Jackson and her nomination and what's happened surrounding her nomination. To question someone's qualifications, to say, let me see your LSAT score, to say that President Biden would pick a lesser Black woman is absurd and it's discriminatory. It's what we have dealt with all the time. Black women deal with microaggressions practically every day. Truth be told, I dealt with it this morning. And that was well before I had my morning tea. So I think to myself about First Lady Michelle Obama, and I say, okay, what would she say? When they go low, we go high. God still working on me on the high part. <laughs> still working on me. But, you know, I did I'm praying what I right now. to do. Right, right. But with all of that, you know, it's frustrating what we deal with as Black women, but I still remain very hopeful given what we have seen in recent years. And, and knowing what I've seen from the students at NIU Law and the students of color and the Black women that we have coming through our school. So what do you think these two individuals, Judge, uh, soon to be Justice Jackson and Vice President Kamala Harris, mean to your students and young people? We've got some young people represented in the audience today. Let's hear from Legal Prep Charter Academy. Welcome, yeah. welcome, welcome. Um, what, what have you heard uh, from folks that, you know, are maybe coming up about these individuals and what it means to them to see such prominent black women in these kind of positions. Anyone can take that and maybe we can hear from our students as well. I would, I would say that it's, you can't be what you don't see. Right. So the fact that there are now places where there's representation that is actually, that is broadcast now and not just to this country, but to the world. We have always been, and I remember the very first time I walked into a room with young people and like a bunch of older folks, and I walked in as a new state senator, and the first thing I was told was, you don't look like a senator. And, and my question was, well, what does a senator look like? Because now you have to expand your vision of what a senator looks like, because I'm here. I'm here. And, and I need you to see that I'm here. And, and so any, the fact that we're seeing this right now... Um, and, and the way that it's being broadcast around the world, yes, is a hype for us, because I love what Dean said before about we've always been here. We have always been here. Black girl magic is because of black women work. But we've always been here. So in this moment in time, it's like we rise to the moment in time and we're all swimming in this collective pride. And when I say pride, like, I don't know how to describe what it was like to see this woman sit there and handle what I knew was coming. In terms of the questioning, I knew I knew what was coming and to see her handle each one of those questions with poise and grace and calmness. And I just did post you talk about having an experience this morning. I posted this morning for all overqualified women who need to sit there and subject themselves to questioning by underqualified men and be calm and gracious and poised and, and professional and friendly the entire time. Like, please don't ask me to smile one more time. I don't feel like smiling. <laughs> Like there's nothing to smile about right now. But in that moment, like when we see this out here, we know that the possibilities of what people can see themselves doing 
has just shifted radically. I just saw a picture of myself at probably about one and a half, two and a half, a little jacket and my Chuck Taylor shoes. And it reminded me of putting on my Chuck Taylors and my pearls to watch Kama be sworn in. And to think about what I would tell that little girl that in this day and in this time, who you are, because of when you were born and where you were born and to whom you were born, that you could grow up and be this. No way I could have predicted that. But I know, I know that you cannot be what you've never seen. It's very difficult to do that. And that's so, what this moment means. That's very well said. But it, it must be gratifying on the one hand, but frustrating on the other hand that we're in 2022 and we're celebrating you know, these achievements for the first time where it should have been something that was you know, accomplished way earlier. I mean, does anyone want to speak to that sort of dichotomy in what you're feeling? Well, yeah, I will. I we can't. I don't think we can look back and worry about the fact that we're just getting here. I'm just grateful we're here. What I really loved about the moment of this uh, nomination was when they were looking at the people being considered, and I know everyone saw that screenshot where there were like eight or ten black women, all amazingly qualified. It's like back when Mitt Romney was running and he said, I have binders Binders. full of women. It's like, yeah, we got binders full of people and we know where they are and they are all there. And, you know, I thought that was awesome. That meant a lot to me as a black judge. And I've been a judge for black woman judge. Let me add the woman to it. Um, uh, Yeah, I've been a judge since um, 1996. And there were not many judges then. Not on the federal bench. Don't get it twisted. Uh, I wasn't a uh, state court judge, but, um, you know, it used to be I could walk down the hall at the courthouse, have people looking for Judge Coleman and be right there. I wouldn't have a robe on. They would not know or people would be looking for. And I wouldn't say a word. I'd just be minding my business. But they wouldn't know. It wouldn't even begin to dawn on them that somehow I was in the back of the courtroom area and I was a judge. And that has all changed. And it is wonderful for me to see it. And I just love seeing it's more the merrier. There are a lot of people who now think they can do it and they do it. They come and ask me for advice. I give it to them. I love seeing black women lawyers. Nakia is the head of the organization now that was we were so small when it started way back when in uh, 1987. That's right. Yeah, I was there. I know you were. I was there in the Carson Peary Scott's basement. Uh, I was down there when we were doing it. But it is so wonderful to see how it's grown and how everybody's doing so many different things. They're leading companies, they're general counsels, they're, you know, head of organizations uh, all over the place. And it is wonderful. And so I really try not to look back about why did it take this long at this point? It's like, let's make it happen now because we're here. Let's take it take advantage of that now. Very well said. Um, I know it's early to call on our audience, but uh, because you're sitting up front, our legal prep Charter Academy students, any thoughts on what seeing Judge Jackson going through the process of being nominated and being confirmed to the Supreme Court or even Vice President Kamala Harris means to you? Would you like to weigh in on that? You want to think about that? Give it some thought. We'll come back to you. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to anyone else want to comment on this issue? All right. We'll get back to that in a moment. But uh, I promise not to have too many stats today. But one jumped out at me um, in, in preparing today. So 
According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2019, women lawyers made on average uh, $1,878 per week, whereas male lawyers made $2,200. This means that women attorneys make 85 cents per dollar compared to their male counterparts. The numbers have been much bleaker for women of color, revealing that black women in general make 62 cents on the dollar, while Hispanic women make 54 cents. Question, of course, is why is this still an issue and what can employers do to change this uh, huge disparity? Anyone want to jump in on that? So we have a new law in in Illinois that actually stops you from um, what essentially happens is that you get baked into the salary you're in if your next employment is based on the salary of your last employment. And that means the, I, the, the deciding factor is not necessarily the mechanics of the job or what comes with the job or your skill sets or qualifications. It's we only pay 10% more or we're only going to give 10% more of a thing. Now, we've always known. So when the Lily Ledbetter Act happened, um, she sued because she found out after working in a place where I think it was a tire company or something, she worked there for 40 something years, how much money was not going into her pension. But the lawsuit that got all the way up to the Supreme Court didn't didn't undo that. It was just about whether or not she could know about what those what the, what the other folks were making. So one is um, employers don't be shouldn't be so rigid on um, the previous salary. And, and be more concentrating on what the job actually entails. How much do you pay for this job? And if that person is qualified for this job, that's what it is. Then there's the societal parts where you still to this day will hear things like, well, he has a family. And then there's the individual parts about how we need to learn to advocate for ourselves and speak up and ask questions for ourselves. And so each time one of us gets into a situation where we actually can be the one to make a decision, so I just took this position and I found out that pretty much most of the women made less than most of the men there, except for me. And so the, within the first two weeks, I'm like, well, I ran every pay equity bill for 10 years. That can't go down. So it was like, we can't do that. So it's like, you just, we had to take I, I immediately for the lowest paid ones on the totem rope, fixed it. Like literally just walked in and was like, here's your new title. Here's your new thing without them having to come say that to me. Because what I saw was now I can do something about it. And I know what it feels like to, to find out after the fact that um, I wasn't making, I, I didn't negotiate for myself as well as I thought I did. So part is the secrecy that's cloaked within organizations about what everybody else makes, the inability for us to move from a policy level to get people to understand that you can't, if, if you base it on the previous salary, then women will always be baked into a lower salary moving forward for the rest of their lives. And that means I'm so glad you point out the three different things, <clears throat> because for women of color, you're talking about upwards of 20. It can, you can get as high as almost 20 million dollars, like over the course of a lifetime. That's not going into pensions, not going into your retirement, not going to do That is an actual loss. And that's not a woman's issue. That's a family issue. That's a people issue. That's a community issue, because when women make more money, you know what women do with it? <laughs> We put it back into the communities and around like where we are. And we know that from micro lending. We know that from global studies and data around the world. So the first thing is the understanding that it happens. The second thing, that it is no fault of the person who's applying for the job. The third thing is understand your rights and advocate for yourself as best as you possibly can. Because that is now, at least in Illinois, illegal. 
Yeah, uh, Corey, Nakia, any thoughts on that, Dean? You know, uh, you're training, you're helping train the next generation of lawyers. Uh, is this an issue that you're seeing? Well, I, I was going to just uh, expound on a point um, because I think every, all of your points are extremely valid, but I think it puts too much onus on the employee and not, um, the employer. I think we should um, be enforcing uh, pay parity uh, and exposing um, some of these practices. I don't know exactly how what the what the mechanism would be to do that, but I think that once you expose a thing, then you have to answer for a thing, right? So, I I would say um, part of that enforcement should be exposure in some in some way. No, I agree with Nakia because I was going to say that with um, employers are in the position to be able to do regular assessment, right? of the salaries and see if there's some inequity at play. We know there have been lawsuits. We know that University of Texas, there were law professors who sued. University of Denver professors that sued. We even know with the um, the U.S. soccer team, right, suing for for pay equity. Um, Those women are in a position... (laughs) Those women are in a position to, um, to fight for what's rightfully theirs. But let's think about the majority of women who remain silent, right? Because they're afraid to rock the boat because they may lose their job. Therefore, they may lose their entire livelihood and money for their family to put food on the table. And because of that, I agree that the employer needs to be more proactive. And as Toy was saying, having um, more transparency, with pay, because we know we're always on the losing end when it comes to negotiations up front. We just don't have the information. Just like public, you know, public employers, public jobs are um, um, transparent with their salary, they could do the same. They could also start making pay um, decisions based on merit, right? Um, I am offended by the question of what your previous salary is. I mean, that what does that have I to don't do with anything? It. I refuse. Right? Corey's in a space where she definitely is dealing with this with, with a lot of companies are trying to with equity and diversity. So I would flip yes. Coney you please. on that. Do you do that with age too? Like I'm not saying that either. You don't have to. I'm not saying, I'm not saying <laughs> how. It was like, we can discuss my value when we decide what we're going to do. I think all of your points are excellent and right, right, right on the spot. If you are an employer, though, I think one of the things that you do have to do is that analysis you were talking about, the pay equity analysis. And plug for my law firm, we have an excellent pay equity group, and they do excellent work. But you can analyze if there are pay discrepancies. The other thing that we have to do is we have to do an analysis for where implicit bias may be showing up. And sometimes it shows up in the things that we think are objective. So one of you just mentioned merit. Who decides what's merit? Who decides what's confident versus abrasive? Who decides what's taking initiative and what's being too pushy? All of those things have overlays of cultural myths and stereotypes that negatively impact women of color and definitely black women. So on one hand, we can say to people, yes, you should negotiate. But if there are values out there that people believe that women who negotiate are pushy, then that backfires on you. And someone can react very negatively to you negotiating for your fair value 
without even recognizing that they're, rec- they're reacting negatively to you. So you not only have to have some sort of system and process that interrupts the bias, like, for example, putting on the job application, negotiation welcome. So everybody knows that you're welcome to do it, but also training the people who are engaging in the process of hiring to recognize when their bias may be playing and interrupting it. Having a system and process where if you're hired for a role, everybody makes the same thing. If we are going to look at particular characteristics and criteria in deciding who comes in where, we have it and it's universal. But those are things that can happen, but they won't happen unless we're willing to have the honest conversation that actually iniquity is happening. And oftentimes that's where the problem is, because some folks don't even want to have the conversation that we're having or acknowledge that bias may play a role or acknowledge that the process of demanding that people have to negotiate is actually based on white male heteronormative behavior that women are taught from a very young age not to engage in. And when black women do it, what is it? The perception. We think we're special. We think we're all that. Well, you know, I think we can even take this, and I agree with all of that. I think we can take this even out of the negotiation on salaries. I mean, let's just look at you name, named characteristics. Uh, Want to know what adjectives are applied to yes. different people? Yes. Just to talk about <laughs> performance. So, you know, one person can be abrasive, hard charger. The other person is called a B. Yes. Uh, and that's just women get that in general first, and then black women get it extra. I mean, you talked about Michelle Obama and how she was the angry black woman and she had to like really fight hard. And that was so taxing on her during her time in the White House to have to be careful about her own emotions, you know, uh, as a judge. I mean, somebody might think I'm being really, really tough uh, as opposed to someone else who's just being um, professional. You know, I'm being mean and tough as opposed to professional. Um, Again, a lot of that just has to do with your just who you are. Because you're a black woman, you're going to get a different adjective given to you. And that happens to judges all the time when we're reviewed. It happens to lawyers when they are going to other jobs. Are they going to make partner or not? Well, did they do this or that compared to somebody else? It's a different adjective applied. And a lot of it is just based on you know, societal racial norms. What's it's a really see? interesting point that I think a lot of us can. Certainly, it's hard for us, for me to relate to. But it's got to be difficult knowing that the way you are acting, and that's just consistent with what your personality is, is going to be judged even differently given the color of your skin and given your gender. That's an awfully difficult burden to carry. Lord knows it's hard enough to be a practicing lawyer, judge, senator, right? We all have difficult jobs, but to carry that extra burden, knowing that the way you're conducting yourself is going to be seen through the lens of, you know, pushy, aggressive, Whatever the word you're using, that's got to be an extra burden that is very difficult to, to carry. An extra burden where for some people it's seen as a positive. Right. They're exactly. hard charging. Yeah. They're tough. They're professional as opposed to the same activity is given different adjectives. But that's why I also feel like it's in this time period now because we know that. Mm-hmm. We, we know all of us sitting up here know this. Everybody who's listening to this, we know this. Mm-hmm. Why I don't want to leave off the point about the fact that young girls and women are not taught these, not taught how to negotiate, to make things all nice and to smile when appropriate, or you don't want people to feel uncomfortable around you. We do have to teach negotiation skills 
to our daughters. And we have to teach negotiation skills to our daughters in ear in, in, in earshot of our sons. So I have three. So when I look at them, I'm like, the things that I want her to know, I also want them to know because I need them not to go out into the world um, uh, afraid of an articulate, powerful, impressive, and I'm not saying this about myself, but all women, <laughs> but all women, like that's what I want them to see. I, I want them to see that and not be afraid of that. And, I, and I've come across so many young girls in high school who still like, we're, we've been in this, we've had a, a substantive Me Too moment. We've had, you know, like all areas of all professions, people have talked about this very issue because it is, it's not unique to anyone. In, that is the story of women in this country, period, full stop. Well, so great. we have to teach them to negotiate. We do. Because if that's the first step, because you're not going to be in a situation where you walk in and will have all the information, you won't be, you don't know if you're going to get somebody who's going to negotiate with you fairly based on your merit. You don't know that the first step means when I send or no, not when I send, because she's going to do this on her own. But when my daughter or you or anybody else that goes into a room, walk in there like God sent you. And I want to give you the tools to say, this is, I'm speaking up for myself. I'm advocating for myself. I am, I know what I'm worth and I'm going to ask for this things. It may not always work. And lots of times it doesn't, but we cannot like moving forward now with all that we know now, not let go of the fact that yes, people are not going to be fair. There's so never Dean, have been. Dean, pick up on that as an educator, uh, speaking on the need to teach young women of color on how to assert themselves, negotiate, as the center mentioned. Is that part of the curriculum at Northern? It should be the part of the curriculum at every law school, but it is not. But what I can tell you that we do um, with mentorship programs and, and pairing students with mentors who can help them with those very type of soft skills, call them soft skills. I think it is extremely important, as Toy was saying, that women, especially women of color and black women, um, know that they can shoot for the stars. Right. Know that they it's OK to brag on yourself. For some reason, we were wired when we were younger that that that's wrong. Right. It's shameful to um, to toot your own horn. Um, so we have to give them the encouragement to do that and to know that they have the, the confidence that they can, you know, they can be anything they want to be in terms of law or whatever career it is. And that that we that they will be successful in doing it, too. And Corey, Nakia, one of the solutions, of course, and the center mentioned this, is to have more women on the other side of the table, more women of color, right? Uh, according to the most recent study, women only make up about 20% of equity partners at law firms, and women of color only make up 2% of equity partners at law firms. So part of the solution, of course, has to be promoting women of color so that they can be part of the decision-making rather than asking to progress in their careers. Any yes. thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's exactly true. Um, and, and, and it's why maybe your first question, you know, you talked about um, leveling the playing field. It's why it's this massive yes and, right? You know, to, to Judge Coleman's point, we don't want to look in the past. And to all the comments we've made, we want to celebrate all the achievements. But there is a problem when only 2% of equity partners and law firms are women of color. And what that means is, is like all the colors, okay? It's a shocking number. All the colors. Now, when you start talking about us, black women, 
Now you're less than 1%. Mm-hmm. That's somewhat ridiculous considering how long we've been in the profession and the fact that there are qualified, exceptional black women out there. Now, when we're losing more black women who choose to leave law firms and go in-house, at one point, the stat for black women in-house was 76% of them came from law firms. That's a problem. When they would rather go work in government or somewhere else, that's a problem. Not to say there's anything wrong with those routes, but to say there is something about law firms that is making it such that our numbers are too low. And it shouldn't be acceptable. It shouldn't be acceptable in a world where we know that diversity brings excellence and it brings innovation and it brings creativity and it helps you have the most high performing teams then why would we be okay with less than 1% of the people who hold the power in the organization being black women? It's a problem. Yeah, and that's why um, bar associations like BWLA are so important because we are, we're able to provide um, what, quite frankly, is missing from a lot of these law firms, and that's our faces, right? Um, our, our mentorship. Um, and so we try to put uh, programs in place that will help them as they move along that journey. But I would, I would also say that um, law firms have to take some of the responsibility too. Um, it, it goes beyond just that wonderful paragraph on your website that says we're into DEI, right? It has to be, um, you, have to, you have to put some action behind the words. Um, their ha- pipelines matter. You have to, um, even if they're not uh, black women equity partners, there should be partners that are investing in, in their new associates, all of them, no matter what color or background. And I think that a lot of times the reason why we see um, uh, black women kind of um, fall off the path or go on to um, general counsel is because they, there's not that investment there. There's not that, that feeling of belonging. And there's not quite the, to what you said earlier, they don't see it. So they, it, we really believe that we can't be what we can't see. And there's literally no black woman equity partner at your firm in the office or nationwide in a lot of situations, you know, um, then that's a, that's a bit discouraging. I, w- I would say this, not being in private practice, but what I see is what, what I see in court. And that's when people come into court and you might see the senior partner who's making the argument, but they have, especially I see a lot more now because I'm the black judge and the firm wants to have representation at their table (laughs) when they come in to see me. And so I watch that carefully and then I make sure, and we've been talking about that among judges ourselves, is that we go out of our way to make sure that that extra person who's carrying the briefcase actually says something, actually gets heard, has a role they can build on. You know, I will tell somebody in a minute, excuse me, is that person, this is a eight witness case, is that person going to put a witness on? You know, a lot of my colleagues do the same. They do it for people of color. They do it for women. You're not going to just get to bring them in here, trotting them out as a an exhibit almost, as opposed to actually using them and letting them get some experience. And then people get comfortable. Judges get comfortable seeing them actually in action. And when I talk about my colleagues, I mean, I know how wonderful and great most of the people of color have to be before they even come to me. I know that. But I have colleagues who are not of color, who are not used to seeing that. I want them to be seeing that too. So I'm not the only one yelling about it. 
at meetings or talking about it when people need to have law clerks of color. So, well, they don't have any experience. Well, maybe because we got to demand that they get experience or they come to through these firms. And that's uh, why I know I work with BWLA and they reach out to me and other judges like me and other groups could county bar does this where we can mentor and talk to people directly, tell them to get into these spaces. And if they can get into the spaces, we'll be there to help them. That's what we try to do. So how should, I want to pick up, that's a great point. Uh, very interesting. And I want to pick up on something that we talked about a little bit earlier, which is you know, this dilemma that women of color have when dealing with everyone else with, you know, particularly, uh, you know, their, their, their non, their, their white counterparts, the idea that you have to overcome, you have to work that much harder to overcome this implicit bias that, you know, oh, you're the court reporter or you're not a judge, you can't be the judge. Um, what advice would you give to younger people to deal with the reality that that's still going on today, unfortunately. Anyone want to give some advice to our, our younger folks? I'll jump in. So my thought is that part of what we have to do if we want to create a new world is we have to choose authenticity in ourselves. And too often, you know, I think we've had to compromise so much and navigate so much that we end up upholding the very structure that is making it difficult for us to survive. And we have to take a role to the extent that we feel safe. That's an important part to, to your point. You know, safety is important. And that paycheck on the 15th and the 30th is very, very important. But being able to recognize and call bias out when you see it. This experience of you're not the lawyer, I have so many stories. I told one of them in my TED talk, but so many of them. Ma'am, this area is not for lawyers. I'm a lawyer. You're a lawyer? I'm a lawyer. You're a lawyer? I'm a lawyer. Like three times. And this is not something that's happened one time. It's not something that's happened two times. It's happened in many situations. And so we're constantly having to navigate choosing how we want to show up. But when we're very clear about who we are and what our value is and what our worth is and how we want to show up and the energy that we want to bring into a room, it makes it a lot easier when you have to decide, do I want to put a smile on my face and say, yes, I'm an attorney? Or if I want to put a smile on my face and say, why do you ask? And part of what we have to do as we navigate our professional careers is learning ways in which we have to interrupt bias for ourselves, but also educate people about the biases that are happening. My colleagues are here. They know that if somebody manterrupts in a meeting, I am going to find a way to come back and say, um, thank you. I know I'm not the convener of this meeting, but Tracy, I don't think was done speaking. Tracy, I really wanted to hear that point that you were making. When we begin to do that for other people, they learn they begin to do that for us. And we begin to cultivate an environment where recognizing that something is going on that shouldn't be going on is happening. I taught an older white male partner at my second law firm about the angry black woman. And I just said, oh, sounds like the angry black woman has entered the room. What do you mean? What do you mean? I explained it to him. Completely different situation, completely different time. He says, 
is this, is this the angry black woman? I think the angry black woman is here. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> she's here. I really do believe that if we educate people and we point out when things are happening, you can do it with grace and truth that they themselves will begin to use that language and they will begin to interrupt bias when they see it. But continuing the old playbook of just saying nothing causes us to inherit, to pass on to our kids something. And I've taught my daughters, talking about your daughter, had this whole conversation with my daughter. By the time she was four, we were practicing what to say when someone hurts you. And she came back and said, that's okay. It's like, oh, 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 oh. Let's talk about this. Was it okay? No. So what are you going to tell Bella? Thank you for your apology. But if this keeps happening, we cannot be friends. And I did that because in my work now, I have to coach women on how to speak for themselves because people didn't teach me to do that. Now, I broke all the rules, so I'm not a good example. But people didn't teach girls my age how to do that. And if we want our kids to have something different, then we have to start now by saying this isn't okay. And it's also different. It's not just in employment situations. That's something that manifests in our communities in all kinds of ways. It's the uncle who hugs too long. Mm. It's the person who comes in and thing. They're like, just go give so-and-so a hug. Don't be, don't be, be nice. Be, it is, it is though, those are really hidden messages that we receive from very, very, very early. And it's reinforced in media. It's reinforced in music. It's reinforced in all those things. And then we expect them to like, oh, you can be whatever you want to be and you can go to college. And then they go to college. And you realize they don't know how to negotiate for themselves. They don't know how to say, no, that's not appropriate. I don't appreciate that. That doesn't make me feel good. This is not going to be beneficial to me. So for young folks, when you're like walking into a space, it's okay to acknowledge when something's not right, when something doesn't feel right. It is okay to know. It's okay to say that. You will learn the tools as you grow about how to do it and to choose your battles and decide when you can. But it is okay to acknowledge and to learn how to speak up for yourself when something is not right. That's a professor, a teacher, a friend, a neighbor, a a relative, any of those things. Because knowing your worth and knowing your value also starts with your physical self, your physical space, your physical, all those things. And you carry that with you everywhere else you go. So it's like literally advice to young people in that space is like step into the shoes of the woman you want to be because you don't have to wait until you get there. Be her now. Step in those shoes right now. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's scary. But sometimes you got to do things when you're scared. You know, I was just thinking I, I, I would hope for the next generation, that they're able to choose a space in which they can be authentic, in which they can disrupt the status quo. There's still plenty of spaces where, let's just be honest, where that's just not an option right now. I would love to have a Corey, several Corey's in every one of those um, employment spaces, but we don't. And in how many of us have been told that we have to work twice as hard to to have our dreams dreams come to fruition, right? And that's what we, and I bet all of you did, Mm -hmm. right? We can look at Judge Jackson's TV. It's still doing. It's still doing. It's still doing. Right? So if that hasn't changed, I think we still have to have this amazing work ethic. We still have to do things twice as much and twice as hard. And and what's amazing is at her level, 
<laughs> the U.S. Supreme Court. She still got to prove herself. I mean, all the time. I mean, an LSAT score, which means nothing, really, especially not at her level. That's good news for our students, right? Clap it up. Clap it up. off your LSAT. Don't be stressing about that. Don't be stressing about that LSAT. You heard it from a federal court judge. Don't be stressing. But, I mean, you're still going to get those issues. you got to be ready for them. I mean, I still, I was in the law division as the jury trial judge, and I would have people come into my chambers for pre-trial conferences and look at my certificates on the wall like they had to look at them before they could sit down in front of me. So I had several lawyers, one senior, one junior. They were doing motions in limine, and one of the senior ones went around and said, oh, you went to WashU? No, I just put it up there. Yes. <laughs> I went to Wash U. Oh, you must have gotten there on scholarship. Actually, I did. Academic, you know, or, you know, whatever you say. I mean, I was getting that in the law division. I had been a judge for at least three years before I went there. So, I mean, I was still getting comments even when I'm in federal court. Well, such and such judge didn't do that down the hall. I said, okay, they are two years behind me on this bench. I don't kowtow to any other federal judge unless they're on the Seventh Circuit. And even then, I don't kowtow. But I mean, they're precedent. But I don't have to follow what the other judge is doing. You're in my courtroom. And I'm senior to the judge down the hall that you decided to go to first. You know, because you said, oh, I had judge so-and-so. I had to go. They had an eight o'clock with them. Well, you have an eight o'clock with me. So you need to take a look before you decide who you're going to go to first. But I am automatically the one that gets put to the side, even though I was the one who was on the bench longer. So it still happens at this level. I'll get people reacting to me. Oh, are you a state court judge? Nothing wrong with state court judges. I love them. They're my colleagues. I did a lot of good work there. But for you to just presume I'm a state court judge, certainly. Wait a minute. You're federal. Then their whole demeanor changes. And this is somebody who really is like not even in the legal profession. They just assume that I must be a state court judge, must be elected. You know, so we still get this. Even I get it now. So don't think it's going to go away. Don't put that armor down because you need it. That's all. That's what I would tell everybody. Make sure you understand. I thought about that. There was a pension holding and I me was part of the debate. And the Supreme Court used part of my remarks in the holding. And I was a law student at the time. So I was commuting from Northern to, to the Capitol. I was commuting. And then when, when, it ha- when the holding came out, the labor union, two folks from the labor union went up to the, to the Senate caucus. And they were like, so who drafted Senator Hutchinson's remarks? <laughs> and thankfully... The answer was, have you met Senator Hutchinson? <laughs> she don't let people draft her marks. Like, she did that. She did that. And it was, and all I kept thinking was, I'm just, I'm a law student. I'm already in a holding in a Supreme Court case. Like I wasn't, I was like, oh my, it was such a big thing for me. And then I heard that. Who drafted that for her? And for a split second, I thought, you know, like I let it hit me. Just for just for a split second. Then I picked myself back up. Yeah. Then I took myself back up, and and but those microaggressions. Yes. All the time. And sometimes and the macro. Yes. Micro, yes. macro yes. in your face. That was like a mic drop. Mic drop. You like this? <laughs> like oh. Senator, I want to pick up on that. Um, 
because, you know, you spent many years in Springfield as a state senator, uh, one of the only women of color during your tenure there, I assume, um, five. So Springfield is not exactly known as the most progressive place in the world. And especially in the last few years, you know, it's come to light that it's been, in fact, you know, uh, very much an old boys network and a bastion of sexual harassment and other issues. So talk to us about how you overcame those issues in your time in Springfield um, and how you would counsel others going into public service um, on how to deal with these issues. It's interesting because I don't know that I would describe it as overcame because it's not like it's still, it happens. It still happens. This is when we were taught, when, there were a number of us that did the first draft of the letter um, after the California legislature did it. So it was a it was a group of legislators and lobbyists and other people in the government relations space that came together, drafted a letter about what the environment was like in Springfield. And I, it was amazing to me because it was the first time I really thought about all kinds of stories in my professional past that I just had never thought about since then. Because in the moment, you just... you. Do what you have to do to make it okay, because you gotta live and you gotta eat and you gotta you gotta you do what you can do. And so I remember standing and saying that I was tired of giving the same talk to every new female lobbyist and every new female legislator and everything about how to keep yourself safe. You know, like the things we have to tell each other. Like watch how many receptions you go to. Watch how much you drink when you get to those receptions. Make sure that when you get up from the table, you're not walking towards the elevator next to any man doesn't matter if you know him or you don't know him. The assumption can be made. You know, there were a lot of folks for a long time that behaved as though the atmosphere down there is like Vegas or like what happens there stays there. And then and as time went on in social media and the way information spreads and all the rest of things, it's not that anymore. And under any other circumstance in any other business, like there'd be multiple lawsuits happening all over the place. So we had to come together to write that letter which set off a number of different things, including other women who didn't think that we should, you know, like they went through it. And so they thought we should just put your big girl pants on and deal with it like they dealt with it to men who refused to see really what was happening to women who were terrified about saying anything. And so I knew at that point I was going to have to tell this story. I was going to have to say, and I said it on the microphone on the floor that my very first government affairs contract was for the state alliance of YMCA's. And I was so proud. I was only like 32 was my first contract. It was like, you could eat what you kill. And I had one contract. So I pitched it and I landed it and I had one contract and we were sitting at a table luncheon in Springfield and the head lobbyist for the group who represented almost everything that started with a C was legendary in politics and represented almost everything up here also had a drinking problem, also said in the middle of the thing, the reason, the, the best reason we have her so we can put our beautiful black tits on sale. And I remember, I remember in that moment, like my, I remember my face got hot and I remember I, I could feel tears coming and it was, how do you just remove yourself from such, I need to get up from this table and remove myself from the situation. There were 15 people there. I was one of the youngest ones at the table and I had one contract. So if I lost that contract, I didn't have any contracts. And when I told that story years later, as a sitting state senator, I had to admit that the only reason I felt comfortable saying it because the person who said it had since passed away. Mm -hmm. There's nothing he could do. He 
do anything. And it was also true that there's somebody that I also learned a lot from. So it, it existed in this weird space where I needed to, I needed to learn and I needed to be mentored and I needed to be all those things, but I didn't deserve that. So that's why I'm so um, like death con serious about helping women to understand when they walk into those spaces that it's okay to acknowledge when something is not right and it is okay to speak up about it. And you cannot, just like you can't be what you can't see, you can't fix what you don't see either. And so light, sunlight is a hell of a thing. Sunlight is a hell of a thing. But I had to get to the point where I could feel safe enough and honestly privileged enough because I was sitting in that seat to be able to tell what was a truth for me and still had people like, yeah, right. And it was the same year that I was quoted in a Supreme Court holding and I wasn't even out of law school yet. <laughs> so that's, that's the reason why we need groups like Black Women Lawyers, you know, because that is where a lot of us were able to speak uh, our truth about what was happening in the legal profession. Um, and, you know, I'm so glad to see Cook County Bar here. Um, and, as, and as more of a partner, I know there are more people, Black women lawyers are crossing over, they're going and they're becoming an officers in Cook County Bar, Chicago Bar, other organizations. Um, because the comfort level is there that, yes, we're good here. We know what a great organization we have. We have shown everybody how great we can run an organization. But now we can go other places and take our truth there. And that's why I think it's so important for black women lawyers to have existed. And frankly, had to break away from the other bars to be able to stand on our own and exist because we could not discuss what we needed to in those spaces when we first started. But now we can bring our opinions to those groups, and they're very accepting of this and very supportive, which is seen here today. Very good. Let's get into some of um, what brought you to this point in your career. I was listening to some of Judge Jackson's statements, not yesterday, but in actually uh, her statements in the prior Senate confirmation hearings that she underwent. And by the way, she underwent three Senate hearings, I think unprecedented and our friend uh, Lindsey Graham voted for her on one of these prior occasions, twice, twice. right? Despite uh, his uh, his qu interesting questions today. Um, one thing she said that interested me was that uh, her experience on her high school debate team was really the most formative experience for her in preparing her to be uh, where she is. I'd like to ask any of you, um, what was the most formative experience that you had in coming up as a young person? And what advice would you give to any young people in person watching online, uh, in preparing for a career in the law, understanding that you don't have to be a lawyer, as many of us uh, are showing to be uh, um, to after you go to law school. So any thoughts on that? Uh, what, what were some formative experiences of, for you growing up? Yeah, so um, I work in public policy. Uh, never in a million years would I have thought I would end up in, <laughs> in the space that I'm in. But when I think about uh, my past experience, it very much informs why that, that happened. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., even though I've spent my entire legal career here in Chicago. My mother um, worked as a controller for one of the lobbying firms um, in D.C. Uh, my entire life. And so in undergrad, um, I went to undergrad in North Carolina a and 
And then I would spend the summers in D.C. working as a legislative assistant um, at that lobbying firm. And it was there that I would um, get coffee and carry documents to and from Capitol Hill and sit in the back of meetings and hear how these people are like negotiating policy and essentially making law. Right. Um, I wanted to, at the time I went to school for journalism uh, and I might be dating myself, but this is when Total Request Live on MCB was like the thing I wanted to be um, Donnie Simpson from BT or one of those um, MTV DJs. And my mother, um, I will never forget, we were in the car <laughs> from going home from work that summer. She's, and she's like, well, we have to have a talk about this. Like, what is it? what is it that you want to do? Because it seems like you're really passionate about, um, you come back and you, you tell me all these stories about what you're seeing. I think there might be something there. And plus, you know, they're taking these VJs off of the street. <laughs> so you might want to think about that. In hindsight, you know, that ultimately influenced going to law school and getting me to the place that I'm in. But in hindsight, I mean, she, she was really right um, about the passion that I had to, um, to make policy, to ultimately help people. Um, and then um, at this point, you know, what's an MTV VJ? We don't need, you know? I was going to say, you can tell the dividing line in the room between the people who shook their heads when right. you said TRL, Total Request Live, like and those who have never heard of it or even want to VJ. Even have have you ever heard of the word VJ? Probably not, right? No. no. You ever heard of well, LA Law? We got old somehow. You ever heard of LA Law? I said that in law school once. Everybody looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> Blair Underwood was on it. He was so hot. Yeah. You know, still, still is. There's still is. I mean, but back then, when I like, well, I was like, I want Susan Day. I want Susan Day Anthony suits. And then my name, my nickname in law school was Claire Huxtable because I was married and I had kids and I was trying to. So it was literally like I, Claire's in the back with neosporin and band aids, and she'll talk to you about your bad date last night. That was me in law school because I was old. You know what? I wanted to add what Nikki was talking about. And Judge Jackson mentioned her high school debate, yes, I think, yes. experience. And I did the same thing in high school. And I learned about argumentation and theory. And it was quite helpful. But I think really the most formative experience I had was um, public speaking competitions that I was privy to doing in Jack and Jill. Because um, it was my family was a member of Jack and Jill. And I had a coach taught me how to deliver um, very complicated concepts in a very clear and concise manner. Yes, how to give emphasis where needed. And I believe that gave me the confidence to speak up in crowded spaces, right? Far more than really being on the debate team, although it's, it's quite useful. And when I talk to younger generation, it's about, you know, just taking a chance you know, don't shy away from, especially, now here's the law professor and dean coming out. Chances to write, yeah. chances to think creatively, but also critically, right? To read and write critically. Those things are really going to help you when you go to law school. Yes. I mean, Judge, I'd love you to weigh yeah, in because read. when I talk to younger people who want to go into law, and I do a lot of work with legal prep and, and NIU, I tell them, first and foremost, advocate. Learn how to speak and write in the most persuasive manner possible. Everything else you'll learn, right? I mean, you'll learn how to practice whatever area you want to practice in. 
But the more speaking and the more writing you do in a persuasive manner, in an advocate manner, the better. I mean, I grew up in Canada. The word for lawyer in Canada, at least in Quebec, is avocat. I tell my young attorneys all the time, advocate. That's what your job is. I'm sure as a judge, you see the best and, and sometimes not the greatest uh, examples of that. Well, uh, that's true. I do. <laughs> I do see a wide range of examples. Um, but I would definitely say reading. Read as much as you can and read. If you can read nonfiction, it's great because that's going to put you in good stead later. But do a little both. I mean, I read I went to the library and I would probably take out five or six books every time I went. And I went regularly, at least you know, once a week or so. And I'd have a pile and I'd leave and because you're going to have to do that later. It also teaches you about writing. Just if you see the written word, that will give you a hint on how your writing should be, even if you're not seeing it as much as we used to see it. Uh, back in the day, you're doing a lot more video and online stuff. You know, I had to change my speech over the years when I talked to jurors about what kind of programs they saw that they could. I went from Perry Mason, <laughs> Perry Mason to L.A. Law to um, Law and Order, all the versions, you know, um, and then I had to go to CSI, which I don't watch. But it, I knew enough of it to know that it must be something people are watching because they all think this should be solved in an hour and it's not going to be solved. <laughs> they need the, what is it called, the luminol or whatever. <laughs> That's what they talked about. So I've had to change my approach over the years based on what people are seeing in front of them and the Judge Judy's and the Judge Mathis's and all, how all of that is paid for. This stuff ain't real. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm tell you that right now. I hope it don't hurt your feelings. It ain't real. You they know it's not real when, when Steve Harvey has a they, judge show. Yes. How is Steve Harvey a judge? He's got a judge yes. show. Yes. How yes. Is that? No, it's on my prime time. <laughs> yes. What's he judging? People's cases. <laughs> so they sign a contract to say, okay, if I lose, I get this, but if I win, I get whatever so he, he do says. Like mediation? Yes, he oh. does like mediation. Well, He's a judge. a judge. They call him a judge. <laughs> yes, they do. And that stuff ain't real. I'm gonna tell you that right now. So, but what's important is that you understand, at least you have those ideas in front of you. I didn't have them. I had Perry Mason, that was it. And then Thurgood Marshall, knowing who he was. I didn't have the media and I didn't know. All I knew was that's what my role model was. And so, you know, you have so many more role models. You know, you got so many people you can look at from, from fiction as well as fact. And just assembling this right here is a huge difference. I did not have that to look at. I did not know any female lawyers. I didn't know any female judges. I definitely didn't know any of color. And so it's really important. The first one I met was Ann Williams, and she didn't get on the bench until 85. And I didn't meet her until a few years after that. But she was my, she was my um, uh, example. She was the person I was looking toward. Um, you know, so I would just say, you know, we're here now. And hopefully we're going to be very accessible to you. Corey, you want to pick up on uh, any role models? And, and by the way, the, if there's any takeaway today, it's that Steve Harvey is not a judge. <laughs> We've established that. Uh, any role models coming up or any particular experiences or part of the studies yeah. that you were engaged in that brought you to where you are today? Sure. So, so I, I grew up in Nigeria. My family's from Sierra Leone, West Africa, and I grew up in Nigeria. And when I was in secondary school, um, my English teacher, there, there was a debate going on. Um, they needed somebody to fill in. 
she grabs me and she says, you, you always have an opinion. Throw me in there, right? And this conversation was around women's rights. And I was a flaming feminist. I've been a feminist since I was seven. So I was ready. I get up there and I say what I have to say. And there's a round of applause. And then we sit down and then there's this second round. And I have nothing. And I'm flustered. And I don't know how to respond. It's the last time I've ever allowed my emotions to lead in how I make an argument or in how I present myself because I didn't like that feeling. And I became the queen of rebuttal. Um, I became captain of the debate team, always wanted that rebuttal role. I was like, just let me go last. You guys can have all the shine. I'll just go last. I'm the cleanup girl. And I loved it. Um, Another experience that was formative for me, I'll say, um, when I was maybe 14 or 15, my mother hired a chemistry tutor for me. And there was something that he did that helped me understand just very simply the atom, the nucleus, the protons and the neurons, and how depending on where an element was on the periodic table, it determined everything that was going around that nucleus. And that was going to impact how this element here reacted with this. I walked into every other physics and chemistry class after that. And whether I studied or not, I could tell you how that acid and base were going to react. I would tell you whether it was going to create something that would dissolve or not dissolve. And what that helped me learn, I think, was that I can figure anything out. If I just learn the basics and learn the principles and learn the premises. Now, the bad part of that was I then coasted for three years all the way through the first year in university where I would sit at the back of the class and talk and get called out by the professor and kind of figure out the answer real quick. Um, But those two things, I think, have shaped me more than anything else in terms of how I approach life and approach a lot of things. Role models, I'll say my parents, um, my dad. And when I was younger, the person I admired is this woman named uh, Madame Yoko. And she's a historic figure from Sierra Leone. She was a Mende warrior. And she did a lot to manage the relationship with the colonizers, the British, when they showed up and eventually made Sierra Leone a protectorate. So, Wow. Excellent. Um, before we go on, we're nearing, unfortunately, the end of our program. Um, any questions from the audience? If you've got any, raise your hand. I'll grab the mic and come to you. We'd love to take uh, any questions. Um, yes, is there a She's question? Oh, about it. all right. See, you thought about it. and All right, here we go. Tell us who you are and uh, where you're from and your question, please. My name is Angel Triplett. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I lived here my whole life. And my question is to all of you, um, has law been your initial major or anything like that? Yeah, I found something I wrote when I was 12 years old. And I said, and it was crazy because it was all handwritten. And we thought, and the question was like, what are you going to be doing in the year 2000? And we thought we would have like flying cars. <laughs> like, like we were going to have some hoverboards. And it was like the Back to the Future was going to be real. It was like, no, like back to, the, for me, no, I'm a kid of the 80s. Back to the Future. Uh-huh. That's right. It was right. like, like, 
Yes, I, but we did watch the Jetsons and we did end up with microwaves and flip phones. So between the Jetsons, Star Trek and Back to the Future, that's what I thought my life was going to be like in 2000. So, but we didn't have, we had a little computer lab. So there was like three monitors where you could learn how to type on there. So this little memory book that we wrote was all handwritten. And I wrote that I was going to be a married politician, lawyer, mother of two. At the time that I found it, I was a married politician, mother of three with no law degree yet. And I was like, all right, I got an extra kid. I'm getting that law degree. <laughs> like, this is like, they are not holding that away. And I didn't think, you know, like, when, looking back on when I found it, looking back, and I was like, wow, that's eerily, mm-hmm. like, on the nose, eerily on the nose. But I was a speech team and theater kid. And I thought, you know, when I, by the time I went to college, I'm going to major in theater at this point. I had fallen in love. I was going to be on stage. I was going to be like all that. My mother was like, that's not a real degree. <laughs> so you, I don't know how you're going to make money. How are you going to make money? So I ended up with an English degree and a psych minor. How are you going to make money? Right. I was trying to get, I was trying to get out. Right. In English. Because I can identify crazy and write about it. That's why. And it was a really good stepping stone for politics. It also learned me how, it, it learned me. Listen to me. I'm a communicator. It learned me some things. But when I would learn to do um, speeches, the speech team experience, one, helped me learn how to not um, completely shut down when I, when I mess up. You know, like when the words don't come or if I like forget, I remember being a, probably a freshman in high school and I, they brought me to go recite Maya Angelou's Still I Rise poem. And I'm on the stage and there was newspapers in front. That was when you had the regional ones, the star newspapers, like the star news for every individual municipality. And they were all in the front. And I'm halfway through this poem. I'm 14 years old. And they go, you see the, all the pictures happen at the same time. And I could not remember the next line. And I stood there for what to me felt like forever until the audience up front said, and still I rise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I said. I was like, I could, I could do this. I could do this. And they ain't shut me up since. And they ain't shut me up since. What Angel, what, what grade are you in? Your senior. Okay, great. All right. So you know your plans? Where are you going? Oh, yes. Yes. You can hear her. Okay. I'm going to Loyola University, Arupe, Subsidiary College for two years, um, studying nursing and bachelor's and, I'm not bachelor's, um, behavioral sciences. Um, Good for you. Yes. Great. Dean, uh, I'd like to turn to you uh, briefly on the um, idea uh, of the importance of public universities like Northern Illinois University and public law schools in the development of um, underrepresented students. Uh, Talk to us about both your journey to become the leader of our law school and also the importance of public universities like NIU uh, in bringing women of color up to the ranks in the legal profession. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. I know. know. You're up for it, though. Okay, so let's see. Um, I'll just start with when I joined the 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 legal academy. Of course, I you know went to law school. I was in private practice. I was a transactional attorney, tax, employee benefits. Um, I clerked for a federal judge for two years. But I joined the academy um, at UCLA School of Law, 
and then switched over to back to Houston, my hometown, at Thurgood Marshall School of Law, where I was there for 12 years teaching. But every single year, I had an administrative role, from director of legal writing to associate dean for faculty development and research to associate dean for academic affairs. And so being a dean was essentially a natural progression um, in leadership. But I knew I didn't want to be a dean at just any law school. It had to be a law school that had a mission that aligned with my interests and with my passion. And that school was is NIU Law, um, where access, opportunity, diversity are truly valued. Um, so I'm the first Black woman dean of NIU Law. And being in this position, having this seat, um, is gives us an opportunity. And I'm, when I say us, because I'm thinking about all the other... 28 Black women deans that have been appointed in recent years, but it gives us an opportunity to be the decision makers, to truly impact our profession and legal education. Um, we have diversity pipelines and other initiatives and projects that we're putting in play, and this is going to impact the hiring of faculty as well as you know, student recruitment. As well um, as law clerks. As well as law clerks. So, you know, that's one of the initiatives that I have at NIU Law to make sure we get more of our students into um, chambers and serving as judicial law clerks. Um, for, for students of color, in particular, judicial law clerks, exposing them to what that means, because someone did that for me. I attended Howard Law School. First in my family... Um, to go to law school. I say my brother behind me copied me um, and he went to Yale. He is phenomenal. He has surpassed me in probably every way. Partner at a law firm. Um, but I say, you know, I set the standard for all of those things. But, you know, it, it, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know about clerking. I didn't know about law firms. At Howard, one of my law professors pulled me aside because I performed extremely well in law school. She pulled me aside and said, you will be doing a clerkship. I mean, that's how Howard does you, right? They're like, you will be doing a clerkship. And I went, I don't even know what that is. They were like, that's all right. We're going to help you get all your materials together. And I know that's what we have to do for our students because we just don't know. So she, she coached me. She showed me how, you know, what the cover letter should look like. Um, and at the dean at the time, I can't remember his name right now, but the dean wrote my recommendation letter because I was one of the star students at Howard. So that's what I, you know, hope to do with NIU Law. When we come across opportunities um, in employment or internships for our students, just making sure students know about them and that they are able to put their best foot forward. Excellent. I that, that is really good. I'm so yes. excited. Yes. Clap it up for Dean Hill. That's a great answer. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask Senator Hutchison a question that really struck me when doing some of the research into what you do. Um, according to many studies, including from the ACLU and Normal, uh, African Americans are arrested for violating marijuana possession laws at nearly four times the rate as white people. Yet both ethnicities consume marijuana at roughly the same rate, even in states that have decriminalized marijuana possession. So 
just discuss briefly in the time we have a couple of minutes we have left the work that you're doing in this field in particularly to eradicate this disparity. So you're right. It's 3.6 times uh, more likely, even though usage rates are the same um, across demographics. And so right now I'm the new president and CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project, which is based in D.C. And we concentrate on changing laws in, in multiple states. Federal government isn't moving fast enough. We thought once you got to 25 states that they would have to move. They did not. Um, we are now at 30, 37 medical states and 18 adult use states, which means the majority of people live in a jurisdiction where it is legal in some form. So the foundational question I ask now in my work almost everywhere that I go, and I've logged quite a bit of miles in only about three months, is how do you have a multi-billion dollar industry and its entire ecosystem and still be arresting 600,000 people a year for simple possession in the same country at the same time in this, how, how can that be? And how is it, and how is it that this is a conversation that's so hard to have? So it is, um, it's been really fascinating, especially as you see what's coming down the pike. So typically the way MPP worked were ballot initiatives in the beginning. So first they were responsible for about eight of the first 10 ballot initiatives. And that changed the legalization context across the country. And but now we're coming to the we're coming to the place where half this we only have half the states that do ballot initiatives. So almost everything else is going to be legislatively done, which means purple and red states. And so at a time when 90% of people Literally, 90% of people don't agree on evolution, but 90% of people believe that people shouldn't be arrested for marijuana, <laughs> and we still can't get comprehensive action moving. And then we also, you know, we're looking at where the movement has gone, and that is there was a lot of times when people were saying free the plant, and they didn't think about the people that were harmed the most by the prohibition of the thing we're now giving express permission for you to do. So now you have permission to sell metric tons of this. So we got to have people in the business. We have to have people. It's, it's a three-pronged approach. And what I'm happy about is that this now lets me elevate that three-pronged approach. That it's how do you change the face of the industry? What do you do with the money? And how do you undo the past harms? And the hardest part, the economics are the hardest part of this. Because now you're talking about structural racism and structural racism embedded in capitalism at the same time. And ain't nobody in here magic Negro that can take down all of that with one bill. So there's there is that issue. <clears throat> but you cannot deny that right now, even though there are so many people who feel like this isn't an issue anymore, I'm an, anybody can get access to Canvas the way they want to. You could go the way you always the way you historically did. <laughs> there's the legacy market. I don't say black market because we're trying to build a black market. We don't want anything, everything bad and awful to be black. We try to build a black market. So you could do it the way you used to do it. You can go into dispensaries for, you know, licensed, regulated, tested, you know what you're getting kind of thing. But in the face of that, there's all the civil code things that happen. All of the policy points that need to be discussed after you've asked the question about whether or not you're going to legalize. Once that happens, because you don't have to think about employment law or drug testing, which is discriminatory in and of itself, plug. It's the only thing that stays in your body for 30 days. So you can metabolize almost anything else that will kill you in 24 to 48 hours. But what stays in your body for 30 days is now something that's going to be determinative as to whether or not you can keep a job, which is amazing to me because presence is different than impairment with cannabis. So 
the fact that there's all these areas in the civil code, you it can be used in a custody case. You can lose their housing. You can it's in, inability to get a job. There's and I'm not talking about people who want to be in the cannabis space. I'm talking about people who just want to live life, like literally just live life. So today actually is the 50th anniversary of the Schaefer Report. The Schaefer Report came out of the Schaefer Commission out of the Nixon administration and said point blank that cannabis should not be criminalized, that the, the cost of treating this like a criminal offense as opposed to any public health benefits that they thought they were going to get was negligible at best. And that is the wrong road to go down. What happened after that, that was 1970, March 22nd, 1970. What happened after that though, was that I think about seven or eight States immediately decriminalized between 70 and 1978. And then it stopped and we got introduced to the zero tolerance on all drugs policy out of the Reagan administration they became just say no and created the dare programs and all the rest of that stuff that has caused trillions of dollars of lost wealth, lives, money, property, opportunity, everything for so many people across this country. So I am um, working now to make sure that we can try to embed as much equity, as many equity principles as we can in multiple states as we continue this federal march um, towards legalization. And that means also helping because right now I'm the only person in the country that has legislated it and had to go through the implementation, all of that. And I'm now on the advocacy side. So my wow. conversations are slightly different for people who are having to make this decision, people who are reading about this decision. And I'm super excited because now for the first time, I'm going to be giving an address on May 5th to the United Nations. Wow. All right. So it's incredible. Incredible. This is work that is. Um, and I never would have thought when I grew, I never would have thought that this is where I was going to end up. But I did know that I always felt like when something's wrong. When there's something wrong. And this is fundamentally wrong. And, and you don't have to make a big, huge policy speech to say that it's wrong. This is wrong. And then when there's something wrong, that there's something that we have to stand up to answer for that. So it didn't necessarily matter that it was cannabis per se. It was also, for me, reproductive rights. It was also voting access. It was also, you know, making people understand the budget process, that those are not just numbers on a page that are nebulous and absent. They represent people's lives and who they really are and what's happening on the ground around us every day. And that's why I do what it is that I do now. And it's how I use my legal training and my heart every single day. All right. Thank you for that answer and for your passion and for your service. Last question. We're going to go to each of you. Kind of a fun way to end. Uh, we talked about Steve Harvey, right? We talked about uh, L.A. law. By the way, I modeled my legal wardrobe for the first like five years after Arnie Becker and, and Michael Kuzak. I had the yeah, suspenders <laughs> somewhere in the back of my closet. I lost the uh, suspenders, shoulder, shoulder pads, shoulder pads the rolled up so sleeves, good. right? All right. So. Let's go through the panel. Corey, you could start off. What is your favorite depiction, whether it's realistic or not, TV movies of the legal profession? Well, when I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be Jack McCoy ah, from Law bum, and Order. Dun, 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 dun. But my favorite movie is A Time to Kill. Okay, great movie. Sam Jackson, early Samuel Jackson. Excellent. Um, Judge, you've got a unique perspective. What you know, what goes on behind the scenes when we're not in the courtroom? Is there any reality to any of the depictions of 
the bench in any show. I I stay so far away from legal shows. I I will say Law and Order is the only one of recent times since I've actually been an active lawyer that I really watched on the regular because I started well after, actually after becoming uh, I was a prosecutor first and then and then going on the bench and so I couldn't stand to watch them but Law and Order pretty much had it right especially the first say five years when it started getting into all the fifty different episodes and the you know special victims and all that, I had to leave it alone. But the other stuff, they really had it down, and I really enjoyed watching them. It's amazing how every Law & Order ends with, despite the evidence being thrown out on a motion to suppress, they still win. No. The cops go back, and they no, get no, some admission. No, 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 no. They lost some time. <laughs> Once okay, in a while. Rich, Once I, in a I while. have a question for Judge. Though. Yes. Okay, so my husband laughs because I object at the TV. <laughs> That's objectionable. You can't ask that. You can't do that. Do you ever rule to the TV? (laughs) No, I don't ever rule to the TV. But another show, I will tell you, the old Perry Masons, too. They abided by evidentiary rules. And I Ah. actually have used them in my classes teaching trial ad. Yeah. Perry Mason, the original. The original. Senator, what is the show that geeks you out about the law? So I watch all the legal shows. I watch watch from L.A. Law all the way up to the practice. I watched... I, yeah. If there was a, to Allie McBeal, <laughs> to, to like all the, I watch all the legal shows, hospital shows, and first responder shows. Good wow. Wife, The Good Fight, and yeah, Audra McDonald on The like Good Fight. Seven hours of TV. You just well, I just binge it. I just have to binge it because I don't ever get to watch it live. So, but I understood, my thing was when the, the legal shows would bring in the political stuff. So like, I couldn't watch Boss. It was like based in Chicago. And I was like, ain't nobody murdering nobody in here. Like, we're not, this, that's not how this goes down. <laughs> like that, when, it, when the political stuff happened, it just got to be like too close, <laughs> too close. It's not exactly how it is, but I love, um, I just one coming from like theater and speech to watching that on TV. This is, it's why my nickname was Claire Huxtable. <laughs> that's why, that's why they call me that in, <laughs> in law school. And sometimes they still do. Okay. I'm not giving up Claire, y'all. I'm just let, me, let me real quick just say all of those lawyers and those shows, they don't get to act out like that in front of judges. Real judges would haul True. them away. Right. All right. I'm just letting you know. Don't Even get it. Perry Mason would like lean in his suit. He would lean up on the on the judges thing and like oh, yeah, no, how you leaning up on the judges. What? No, he didn't do that often. He didn't do that but when he did. <laughs> Judge, have you ever said the words order in the court? No. See, that doesn't really happen in, in real life. And I don't I, use my gavel. Right. Not even with like kids. I did it with kids. No. I say order in the court with that. No. Well, I, I do say I'm a dictator though. I'm like a benevolent dictatorship in here, not a democracy. My daughter tells me I'm judgy at home. Yes. She does tell me that. Yeah, I've been in practice for a while, and I've never heard the words order in the court or I will haul out the next person who has an outburst in my courtroom. I demand order. Uh, Nakia, uh, TV movie that depicts the law that you are a fan of. So I watch a lot of them as well. I I did like The Good Wife very much. Um, But there's a movie uh, that came out in 1996 that I really love that people don't talk about too much. It's called uh, Primal Fear. Oh, yeah. Richard Gere. With Richard Gere and Ed Norton. I've never been. I'm not a, a trial attorney or into criminal law, but. Every time I see that movie, I have to sit and watch. It's just so compelling. It's a really good movie. That's My cousin <laughs> Benny. That's the one. My cousin Benny. Now, I do. I love My that movie. My cousin Benny. Yeah. That's it. 
Dean, um, wrap it up with your favorite uh, legal TV or, 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 or movie. Okay, so for movies, um, I would say A Civil Action mm. with John Travolta. Sure. You know, the childhood. Uh, leukemia and it really is a primer in legal advocacy um there are so many all the tv shows you all mentioned i love them but i would have to say the one that was most impactful for me is girlfriends and i know that the legal drama part the legal side was not the central theme of the show and if i don't know you know girlfriends with tracy ellis ross but she was a black woman attorney in a law firm And I remember watching every episode and then all of my girlfriends that were in big law, we were all in big law at the time, we would just be amazed at how accurate her experiences were in the firm. And then we were slowly kind of leaving big law at the same time, not to open our own restaurant. Explain big law. Oh, big law firms, like a a very large law firm that has maybe like 250 or 500 attorneys and um, offices all over the country and the world. So it's like a major law firm. And we just shorten it and call it big law. And she was part of that um, world. And everything that she experienced, we experienced. And I was like, I know they have a lawyer in the writing room for that show. Well, that's great. My favorite moment in any legal themed TV or movie is a movie called Class Action. Uh, where Gene Hackman plays a plaintiff's attorney who's going up against a big law firm. And he gives advice to a young associate. And he says, you know, you've got the other side when they do one of these moves. (laughs) And sure enough, in the big scene before the judge, uh, Gene Hackman drops the key piece of evidence. And the other lawyer, who's a big defense lawyer, does one of these. And he's about to pay like, you know, $50 million to settle the case because Gene Hackman's got him. But the lesson I learned is never let them see you sweat, right? Never show that you are defeated before anyone, including a judge or opposing counsel. So to me, class action is the one. I want to thank you all very much. A big round of applause for our esteemed panel. I've got, you know, probably 30 questions we didn't get to because uh, the panel was so amazing. So Dean Hill, Nakia Crossley, Senator Hutchison, Judge Coleman, Corey Carew, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you to our uh, audience for participating today. Great questions, great participation. I want to thank behind the scenes here, Ben Anderson, our engineer. Ben, you want to pop out and say hello for your hard work today? I want to thank Yvonne Barbosa from uh, Bryce Downey Lenka for putting this all together. I'm also Emily Flores behind the scenes. I want to thank especially Eddie, who donated this amazing space, Fame Nightclub. Uh, Please visit Fame during uh, the times that we're open. It's a beautiful club, as you see. It's not usually this quiet. It's much louder. And, of course, I want to thank uh, my co-host, Tino Artini, who is not available today, but you can check us out on Legal Legal Faceoff. I should probably get that right. On WGN, we release our podcast every two weeks. And to our audience watching online, thank you very much. And, again, one more round of applause for our panel. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time on Legal Faceoff.